You're listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Coburnett. It is our desire that you will be helped by this Bible message. Take your Bibles, please, to Jeremiah chapter 24. I'd like to finish uh, where we left off last week in this uh, we're in the series on Jeremiah. I'd like to finish this chapter if we can. It says in Jeremiah 24 and verse 1, The Lord showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord. And we talked about that last week. Those two baskets of figs, they represented the nation of Judah. It represented those who would be carried captive and those who would, uh, would stay and those who would try to fight, those who would try to run, those who would try to escape. And God said one was the good figs and one was bad. And it wasn't just good and bad. It was very good and very bad. And God used that visual uh, to get a message across to his people. Well, I had on Saturday... I had not a basket of figs, but I had a package of Fig Newtons hand-delivered to me. Remember we talked about Fig Newtons last week? I hadn't had those in years. Let me tell you, they are, they're still good. If you've never had them, you owe it to yourself to try them. I would have brought them tonight to share them, but they're almost gone, so I didn't know how far that would go. And then on uh, Sunday, I had another package hand-delivered of Fig Newtons. And so you don't have to bring any more Fig Newtons because they're not, they're not healthy, but they are so good. And uh, so anyway, we talked about that last week. But the figs were representations of two groups of people in Judah. We talked about that last week. I want to uh, pick up where we left off. And it says in verse number one that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive. Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that were first ripe, and the other basket had very naughty figs or evil figs which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then said the Lord unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs. The good figs? very good, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten. They are so evil. Lord, I pray that you'd help us as we look at your word. I pray we would understand these truths and principles, and I pray we'd understand this story. But Lord, I pray that we would also make application. I pray that we would realize that the Bible was not just written as a history book, but it was written as an instruction manual for life. And these truths were written for our learning. They were written for our admonition. And they were written to show us what is pleasing to you, what is not pleasing to you, how we should live, how we should not live. And I pray that you speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to draw your attention in verse 1 to the captivity. Now again, God's people uh, came out of Egypt where they were in bondage in Egypt. And they came through the Red Sea and they came over into the wilderness and they wandered in that wilderness and then they went in to conquer the promised land. God had promised them that he would give them that land. It was a beautiful land. It it was a wonderful land. As a matter of fact, today, 
All these years later, guess who everybody, guess what land everybody's fighting over? That same spot, uh, that land that belongs to Israel. It's the land that God gave them. They were given that land. They moved into that land. They possessed that land, but something happened. They got their eyes off of God. They began to worship false gods. They began to worship the idols. Get this. How, how silly is this? They began to worship the idols of the nations that they had defeated. Now, you would think it wouldn't take a rocket scientist to think, wait, if we defeated that nation, their gods are not really that incredible because they couldn't stop us and they couldn't stop our God. But nonetheless... Aren't we just like that sometimes? God saves us. God gives us the victory over sin. And sometimes we go back into that same sin that God saved us from and from the same stuff that ruined us and wrecked us and, and, and gave us heartache. And yet sometimes because of our flesh, we get back in to that same thing. But the children of Judah, the Bible says, that they were carried away captive. They would be carried away captive into Babylon. Now, the Babylonian captivity was going to last for 70 years. It was God's judgment on his people. And the reason for that judgment, it's interesting, it's because of how many years they had not observed the Sabbaths in the land. And God said, okay, you're not going to obey my laws. You're not going to do it my way. Then uh, I'll have to uh, force this. I'll have to implement this. I'll have to do this. And you're not going to have a say in the matter. And so that is where the 70 years came from. And we'll talk about that later. But I want to draw your attention to this phrase in verse number one. It says that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive. You know, God's people were never intended to be in captivity. God's people were never intended to be in bondage. That's not what God's plan is. That's not what God's will is. This word carried away captive, this phrase, it literally has the idea not just to be in chains, but it has the idea of being stripped in a disgraceful way. Many times when prisoners were taken captive, they were stripped of their clothing. They were stripped of their possessions. They were stripped of all that they had in a, uh, a show of, uh, of, of, of shame, in a show of mockery, in a show of disgrace. And the conquering uh, uh, army would do that basically just to show them you're nothing. And the fact that you're even alive right now is a blessing because we could kill you if we wanted to. And God's people were carried away captive. They were humiliated. They were mistreated. They had everything that they owned stripped away from them. Now, that's hard for us to imagine in the United States of America. But can I tell you, there are nations in this world where people have experienced that. There are nations in this world where people do not have freedom. There are nations in this world where people don't get to choose where they're going to live. There are nations in this world people don't get to choose where they're going to work. There are places where people don't get to choose what they're going to eat or even if they're going to eat. There are places where people do not have the freedoms that we have today. And I want to remind you that the freedoms that we have today, we ought to thank God for them. 
We ought to appreciate them. We ought to do all we can to keep those freedoms to pass on to the next generation because sometimes we don't appreciate the water until the well runs dry. And I'll tell you, freedom is nothing uh, uh, minor, nothing insignificant, but freedom is something uh, uh, wonderful and marvelous that we have been given in our country. But not just physical freedom, but spiritual freedom. You see, if you're in Christ, if you've been saved, if you've been born again, if you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you have been set free spiritually. Satan doesn't have chains on you anymore. He doesn't have you in bondage. He doesn't have you in captivity. Uh, uh, there is liberty. There is freedom in Jesus Christ. Freedom to serve and freedom to live for God and freedom to do those things that would please our Savior. The children of Judah, God's people, they were carried away captive because they would not obey God, because they would not uh, uh, guard the freedom that they'd been given. They would not guard the blessings. They lost the blessings. But I want you to notice in this passage what's sad is that many people were affected by the decisions of a few. You know who really made some of the big decisions for Judah? It was the king and it was the princes. And you know, many times there are decisions that we make that do not just affect us, but they affect those around us. There are decisions that you make that will affect uh, your home, that will affect your marriage, that will affect your children, that will affect your grandchildren, that will affect your brothers and sisters in Christ. And our decisions are so important because they don't just affect us, they affect others. No man is an island unto himself. The decisions you make will have some influence or some bearing on those around you. But here's another interesting thought. The children of Judah, they were affected by the decisions of their leaders. But back in Bible times, you didn't get to pick your leaders. <laughs> whoever, whoever was the king, uh, his son became the king and his son became the king. And that's just the way it was. And if you got stuck uh, with a loser for a king, then, you know, sorry, but, you know, you're in for it. Aren't you thankful we live in a country where we get to vote? And we get to choose and we get to pick and not just a president, but we get to pick uh, congressmen and we get to pick senators and we get to pick local officials. You say, why are you telling us all this? Because we have an opportunity and we ought not waste it. And this November, when it's time to vote, I think God's people ought to go out and I think you ought to vote and I think you ought to pray and I think you ought to stand for what's right, not just in an election year, but every year. But we will be affected by the decisions of the leaders that we choose. The king, King Jeconiah here, was carried away captive. It's interesting that while the people, the common people were carried away captive, the king was carried away captive. The, the princes were carried away. The leaders were carried away. And even the king was not exempt from the judgment of God. And I want to remind us the spiritual application is it doesn't matter how long we've been saved. doesn't matter whether it's a pastor doesn't matter whether it's a Sunday school teacher. Doesn't matter whether it's a deacon or, or a charter member. Doesn't matter uh, who it is. We all, we all are accountable to God. 
We are responsible to God and none of us are above this book right here. We all must obey. We all must do what God has said. Even the king was not exempt. But notice also with me, if you would, they carried away the king and they carried away the princes. But notice who else they carried away. The Bible says they took with them into captivity. They made sure to take the carpenters and the smiths. Interesting. What do carpenters do? They build. They're, they're the craftsmen. They're the ones that build buildings. They're the ones that build structures. They're the ones that build walls. They're the ones uh, that build and provide fortification. They're the ones who build so that people can have shelter, so that people can have comfort. There were the carpenters. There were also the smiths. The smiths were those like a, a blacksmith or someone like that who would work with metals. And the smiths were the ones who would make tools and make weapons. It's interesting. There was a time where the Philistines came into Israel and you know what they did? They made sure that there were no smiths. There were no blacksmiths. There was no one in Israel that could make a sword. There was nobody that could make a spear. You know what they did? They disarmed the people. Oh boy, there's a whole lot we could say about that right there. But let's talk about the spiritual part of that. You know what Satan wants to do? He wants to take captive from your life. He wants to take captive the people that are going to build something. People that will build a family people that will build a marriage, people that will build the next generation, people that will build a Sunday school class or a junior church or a bus ministry. Uh, the, Satan wants to destroy the builders because Satan is not in the building business. He's in the destruction business. He's in the demolition business. And Satan wants to, wants to destroy. And if he can keep people from building, then his job just got a whole lot easier. Can I tell you, God wants us as Christians, he wants us to build. There ought to be some building going on. There ought to be some construction going on in our lives. What I, what I mean by that is we ought to be closer to God today than we were yesterday. We ought to be building. We ought to be growing. We ought to be getting closer to God. Did you know building is not easy? And, and, and those in here that do any kind of building, you're thinking, Pastor, if you only knew you know, building is not easy. If it were easy, everybody would be doing it. Building takes a lot of time. You say, how long does building take? It takes longer than you ever think. It takes longer than anybody will ever tell you. If they say this building is going, for instance, and, and we've not been through a building project here since I've been here. Uh, I was in a couple building projects in Illinois and I was in a couple building projects in California. If they say, this building is going to take one year. You might as well count on two years minimum. I mean, if they say one, you might as well just go ahead and double it and say it's going to be two. And if they say the building's going to cost one million, you better double that too. Because buildings take time. Buildings cost money. Buildings require plans. You say, all right, we're ready to build. No, you're not ready to build. Not until you got a plan. 
not until you get an architect, not until you get a designer. And you know, as Christians, we've got a, an architect already. We've got a designer already. His name is God. And he's given us a blueprint right here on how to build our lives and how to build our marriages and how to be closer to God and how to do those things that we ought to do. But building is not easy. And the enemy, the Babylonians, removed the carpenters and they removed the smiths. They didn't want anybody building. They didn't want anybody fighting. They didn't want anybody to have weapons for war. They didn't want anybody to have tools for everyday life. I want to ask you this evening, spiritually, what are you building? What, what am I building? You say, well, I don't, I don't know if I'm building anything. Well, you got to build something. Uh, there's something that you can build. You could build, build a fellow Christian by encouraging them, by praying for them, uh, by discipling somebody. You know, you could build a spouse. Uh, you could build a, a child or a grandchild. And you say, well, how do I do that? Well, well, the way you do it is by getting in this book right here and by living it and by obeying it and by studying it and by memorizing it, by having something that you can give somebody else from the Word of God. But what are we building? I want to ask you this. What are we fighting for? The Babylonians wanted to get all of those smiths out of the land because they didn't want to have somebody coming after them with a sword. They wanted to have an enemy. They wanted to have an, an opposition that was disarmed. And I'll say this as kindly as I know how. But Satan does not have a lot of trouble with many Christians today because they're powerless. They don't ever pick up the sword. They don't ever spend time in prayer. And Satan is having a field day because he's fighting and he's serious and he knows we're in a battle, but many Christians act as if we're not in a battle. Many Christians act as if we're not going to war. We don't even put on the armor of God anymore. Uh, we think that's just something for the pastor to do or something for the Sunday school teacher. That's for every child of God, every day of our lives to put on the whole armor of God because we are in a spiritual battle. And if you say, oh no, I'm not in a spiritual battle, you better watch out because you're the one who Satan's coming after because he's got a target on your back and you don't even know it. You don't even realize it. We must be building, we must be fighting, and we must not try to fight without our weapons, the Bible, the sword of the Spirit, and the power of prayer. I want you to see as we go on, I want you to see in verse number five, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge. That word means I'll regard or I will remember them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. Now, this is so powerful. I don't want you to miss this. We would think the people taken captive, those were the bad figs, right? Oh, no. You know what God said? God said, those were the good ones. Those were the ones that God said, I'm protecting you. You may not realize it, but you're actually going to be safer in Babylonian captivity because that was a part of God's plan. You're safer over there than you are safer in the walls of your own city. If you go on, notice verse number uh, 9 and 10. God says what he was going to do to those that did not surrender, those that did not give in. 
God says, I'll deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt. And they will be a reproach. That, that means a, a disgrace. They'll be a proverb. You say, well, aren't proverbs good? Uh, not all of them. Some of the proverbs are like, don't do like that foolish person did. Don't do like that slugger did. Don't do like that uh, hard-hearted person did. And God says, I'm going to make you a proverb. You're going to be like a bad illustration, a taunt. That is a, a sharp or cutting word or, or a curse. Uh, that, that's how people would use them, uh, talking derogatory about them, saying those people were so foolish, they didn't even listen to God. And God says, in all places whither I shall drive them. And God says, I will send the sword the famine, the pestilence among them, till they be consumed. That word is destroyed. Until they are destroyed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. That's what God says he would do to those who did not surrender, to those who did not submit to God's plan. Those that said, not us, we're fighting. Well, can I tell you, that, that sounds noble. And that sounds very heroic. And that sounds very, uh, very praiseworthy. But if you're fighting against God, that's not going to have a good outcome. And that is not going to have a happy ending. So here's what I want you to see. The good figs that, that, that Jeremiah prophesied about from God, the good figs were those who were carried away captive into Babylon, and it was for their good. You see, it would have been better if they would have obeyed God. Let's just get that straight. It had been better if they would have obeyed God in the first place and not had to go into captivity. But even though God was punishing them, even though God was judging them, God still cared about them. God still loved them. Just like you and just like me, when our children are disciplined, when our children are punished, Yes, they are punished, but we still love them. Doesn't change the fact that they're our child and the fact that God's people were being judged did not change the fact that God still loved them. Yes, they were out of God's will, but hallelujah, they were not out of God's care and they were not out of God's mind. He had not forgotten them. Notice he gives them a promise in verse six. He said, I will set mine eyes upon them for good. And I'll bring them again to this land and I'll build them up and I won't pull them down. I'll plant them and I won't pluck them up. God says in verse seven, I'll give them an heart to know me that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. Now, we could give a lot more examples, but I wanna give you a couple. How about this? For Jonah, Jonah was he in the will of God or out of the will of God when he uh, fled. He went down to Joppa to catch a boat to Tarshish, but he was supposed to go to Nineveh. Was he out of the will of God when he went the other way? Yeah, you better believe it. So for Jonah, he gets thrown overboard on a ship in the middle of the sea and he gets swallowed by a whale. Now we would look at that and say, that's bad. But can I tell you, in God's plan, that was good because it was in that whale's belly that Jonah got right with God. Now, it would have been better if Jonah had gone straight to Nineveh. Please don't get me wrong. God, God doesn't need our, 
our theatrics. God doesn't need us doing crazy stuff just so he can come to the rescue. Okay, please understand. But that whale for Jonah, that was for his good. That was so he could get right with God. That's so he could go and preach and an entire city could get saved. You see, we don't think the whale was good, but can I tell you, that was for Jonah's good. How about when Jacob wrestled with God and in that wrestling match, the Bible says that Jacob's thigh was put out of joint and so for the rest of his life, he walked with a limp. Now, we look at that and say, that's bad. I mean, that is a, an injury that he had for the rest of his life. But for Jacob, that was good because that was a turning point for Jacob to admit to God that he had been living a life that was a fake and was a phony. And that was a turning point. That We wouldn't look at that as a good thing, but that was for Jacob's good. How about this? Famine, a worldwide famine. That's awful, that's terrible. But you know what? God used that to get Jacob and his sons to Egypt where there was food and where they would be reunited with Joseph and their relationship would be restored. And although we would look at a famine and say, that is bad. We don't want a famine. We don't want that to happen. We don't want problems. Or maybe like we would say, and I'll be the first to tell you, we don't want a pandemic. We were not, nobody put that on their prayer list in January or February. And if you did, I'd like to have a word with you out back. Lord, would you please give us a pandemic? Nobody was praying for that. But here's the amazing thing about God. God can take the curse and he can turn it into a blessing. He can take something that we look at as bad and God can work that for our good and ultimately, he can work it for his glory. Isn't that amazing? And notice the outcome of this. God said, although you're going into captivity, although that's not what you would have chosen, God said, it's for your good, because he said in verse 7, I'll give you a heart to know me. I'll give you a heart to know that I am the Lord and that you are my people, and I will be your God, and you will return unto me with your whole heart. God said, I'm not going to have to twist your arm. I'm not going to force you. I've given you a free will. But when you go into captivity and you're there in Babylon, you are going to have a desire to come back and get right with me. Now, I don't want problems. I don't want trials. I don't want burdens. I don't want heartaches. And none of you do if you're honest. But sometimes God takes those burdens and God turns them into a blessing because in the process, we come back to God. In the process, we get right with God. You say, Pastor, I'm so glad you're preaching this because I think somebody might be listening uh, on the computer, on the radio, and I think they need to hear this. Well, maybe so, but it could be somebody in here and you're in church, but maybe your heart has gotten away from the Lord. Maybe we've kind of put on a good show on the outside and maybe we're good at going through the motions and we know just what to say. And we, you know, we've got, it's like, a, it's like an acting job. Sometimes you come to church and you put it on and you get out of the car and say, oh, thank the Lord that's done. <laughs> now I can go do whatever. Can I tell you, that's not Christianity. You can be saved. 
You can know the Lord as your Savior and have a home in heaven, and you can live one way maybe at church and live another way at home. You're not going to be happy. You're going to be miserable because the Holy Spirit's going to convict you. But that's not the way that God intended for the Christian life to be lived. He wanted us to love him with our whole heart. That's what Jesus said. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. While they were in captivity, while the people of Judah were in Babylonian captivity, by the way, a lot of distractions had been removed. <laughs> a lot of the stuff was gone. A lot of the extras were gone. And they had a lot of time to think about all that God had done for them and all that God had blessed them with and all that they had taken for granted. But God said he would give them a heart that they could know him. I want to close with this, and if you have a pen and paper, I want to give you just a couple things that maybe you can jot down, just practical, some things we can take home and hopefully we can apply. So the question is, how do we get a heart for God? How do we get a heart, the Bible says, to know God? You know, Paul said in Philippians 3, he said, that's my desire. He said, I want to know him. I want to know God. I want to know the power of his resurrection. So how can we get to know God? Sometimes God has to shuffle some things in our lives. I think of several times in my life. I think of one when I was in high school and we moved from a, a great youth group, a great church, and we moved and all of a sudden there was no youth group uh, there were no friends my age. There was a, a brand new church of just a handful of people. I'll tell you what that did for me. That was a wake-up call. I couldn't rely upon my friends to be spiritual, and I couldn't rely on everybody else to carry me through. I had to get to know God for myself. I remember when I went to college, and I went to college uh, about 2,000 miles from home, and uh, Julie was there, the, and my mom and dad, and Julie and Joel, and uh, let's see here, Jill and Jessica, and I think Jennifer, she would have been, yeah, she would have been three years old, I think, or four at the time. And they drove out to California, and they dropped me off. Now, mom was crying before they ever left, and like mothers would do. But guess who else was crying right after they left? You're looking at them. An 18-year-old college young man, you know, I'm going to be all right. What have I done? Now, that was, before, that was before cell phones, where you can text every two minutes and before you can FaceTime and before you can do it. You know what I mean? And it was like, what have I done? And I was in a place where I knew a few people, but not a lot. And all of a sudden, I realized, oh, mom and dad aren't here. My family's not here. And church isn't here. And I'm going to have to get to know God. I'm going to have to get real close to God because if I don't get real close to God, I'm not going to make it just going through the motions and just trying to be a put on a show. I've got to make sure this is real. So, so here it is. And, and, I, and you know this, but let me remind us tonight of some ways that we can get to know God. And you say, well, I don't need that. I already, well, you're probably the one that needs it the most because we all need it every single day to get to know God better. Number one, how do you get to know God? got to spend time with him. You can't just read about him in a book. You can't just study about him online. You got to spend time with him personally. That means you got to talk to him and you got to let him talk to you. You got to talk to him and then you got to listen and let him speak to you through his word and through prayer. You say, well, well I'm too busy. I don't have time to spend with God. Then you're too busy. You have to slow down. 
You gotta, gotta rearrange the schedule. Maybe you have to cut out a hobby some, maybe you need to cut out some sleep, maybe you need to get up a little earlier, maybe you need to take some time at your lunch break, whatever you need to do, but that time must be scheduled. If you don't make the time for it, I promise you it will not happen. Because the devil will make sure that everything comes up so that it's never convenient to get alone with God and spend time in his word. So how do we get to know God better? How do we have a heart to know God, spend time with him? Number two, you're doing it tonight. You got to his house. If you want to get to know somebody well, you can't just wave at them in passing out on the sidewalk. You got to spend time with them. You got to go by their house or they come by your house and, and you get to know somebody very well that way. When my wife and I, when we were dating, and we lived about two hours apart after college. I was in Illinois, she was in Iowa. You know what we did every Monday when we had a day off? We went to each other's house and we spent as much time together as we possibly could. How come? We wanted to get to know each other. This was a relationship that I was hoping that I'd somehow be able to convince her. You know, they say love is blind and apparently it was because she said yes to me. But I wanted to get to know her and I was hoping this was the one and I, she was, I don't know what she was thinking, but I'm glad she said yes. But you know what? We spent a lot of time together. We must spend time with the Lord. We must get to his house. We must get around his people. You know, the more you get around God's people, the more you get to know God. Because when you get around God's people, you know what we, we like to do? We like to talk about God. We like to brag on Jesus. We like to encourage. We like to pray for one another. We like to help and exhort one another. Get around God's people. Uh, next, you serve him. You know how you get to know somebody really good? Work with them. As a matter of fact, uh, go outside maybe and, and, and do a job for like a whole day, just working with somebody. You're going to get to know them real well. You know, when you serve the Lord, when you work with him, you get to know him. And the more you get to know him and the more you serve him, the more you love him. Do something to, to get involved in serving the Lord. Next, what do we do to get to know God? Think about him. Just think about his blessings. Think about all the good things that God has done. Uh, uh, recognize what he has done. Realize where you would be and let's realize where we all would be if it were not for the grace of God and get to know him by thinking about all the things that he's done for you. And then lastly, and I know there's many more, but I'll just give you one more. How do we get to know God better? We worship him. When I say worship him, I mean we sing praises to him. We thank him. Uh, we, we glorify him. We exalt him. That's what we've been doing tonight. We've been worshiping the Lord. We've been singing his praises and, 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 and sharing answers to prayer and talking about the goodness of God. And now we're uh, sharing the word of God and telling us how we can serve him more and love him more. And that's the goal. The goal is that we get to know God and that we have a heart to know him. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Coburnett. For more information about our ministry, please visit our website at vbcrr.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.